The Tiger Tamer Who Went to Sea from History Extra charts the life of a remarkable Victorian, Britain's original long-distance wheelbarrow pedestrian. New episodes are out every Thursday or listen to the whole series immediately ad-free by subscribing to History Extra Plus on Apple Podcasts or listening on HistoryExtra.com. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Over 25 years ago, on September 29th, 1998, we watched a brainy girl with curly hair drop everything to follow a guy she only kind of knew all the way to college. And so began Felicity. My name is Juliette Littman, and I'm a Felicity superfan. Join me, Amanda Foreman, who you may know better as Megan, the roommate, and Greg Grunberg, who you may also know as Sean Blunberg, as the three of us revisit our favorite moments from the show and talk to the people who helped shape it. Listen to Dear Felicity, presented by Walmart on Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts. The American Bar Association provides access to career-changing and life-changing opportunities. Invest in your growth. Deepen your knowledge and join us in our pursuit of making a positive impact for all. The American Bar Association. This episode is brought to you by Paramount+. Plus. Get in, loser! Mean Girls is now streaming on Paramount+. Plus. Join Katie Heron as she meets the plastics and Tina Fey's new twist on the modern classic. Get ready for more of the rumors, backstabbing, and jokes you loved from the original movie with some fetch surprises. Rated PG-13. Wear pink and head to ParamountPlus.com to try it free. Hello and welcome to the History Extra podcast from BBC History Magazine, Britain's best-selling history magazine. I'm Ellie Cawthorn. In today's episode, you'll be hearing from Dr. Shushma Malik of the University of Roehampton. She's the author of a recent book on the Roman Emperor Nero and has also written a feature on Nero for the August issue of BBC History magazine. In her conversation with our editor Rob Attar, Shushma discussed some of Nero's most infamous crimes and whether he really deserves his monstrous reputation. If we were sort of to begin at the beginning... When does Nero become emperor and what's the situation with the ruling Julio-Claudian dynasty at that point? Uh, Nero becomes emperor in the year AD 54. So this is, uh, he's an emperor who is part of the family that has been ruling in Rome since about 27 BC. So he's not one of the earliest emperors, but he is still part of that first dynasty in Rome known as the Julio-Claudian dynasty. Um, So he is related back to the first emperor, um, Augustus, through his mother primarily. Um, His mother is the great-granddaughter of Augustus. So he has a blood link through her back to the first emperor. But he's also related, um, in a Roman sense anyway, to the previous emperor because he has been adopted by him. And he's also blood-related to the previous emperor because uh, Claudius, who 
reigned before Nero, married his niece, Nero's mother, Agrippina. So the, the politics and the, the lineage of the Julio-Claudian dynasty is a little bit murky um, on both levels. But uh, he, so he has, he's part of that ruling family. Uh, they have been, like I say, ruling in Rome for um, a number of years now. Uh, we had Augustus uh, pass the um, emperorship, if you like, to his stepson Tiberius. Um, Tiberius then passed that back to a direct lineage, if you, um, uh, back to Augustus to um, Caligula, who was Augustus's great grandson. And uh, then we had Claudius, who is um, also related back to to Augustus as well, um, and then Nero. So we've had a fairly sort of tight. Uh, relationship with Augustus going going through to Nero. Um, and he is, yeah, he, when, in AD 54, he is also the adopted son of Claudius. So his his right to rule seems, you know, fairly straightforward. Um, slightly less straightforward is that there's another candidate, which is uh, Claudius's uh, blood son, natural son, Britannicus. Um, but he's young at the time. He's uh, 13, so he's a bit too young. Uh, Nero was only 16, but that does make quite a big difference in, um, in, in kind of the succession story. And Nero nowadays is known as one of, if not the most monstrous Roman emperor. What are some of the main charges against him? Uh, so Nero, uh, one of the reasons why he's thought of as one of, like you say, the most notorious Roman emperor, I think, is because of the wide range of charges against him. Uh, you know, Caligula murdered people, um, you know, that sort of thing, uh, senators, and had some uh, incestuous relationships with his sisters. But uh, Nero really does kind of, you know, expand the remit of what you can do. He had 14 years. He ruled till AD 68 compared to Caligula's four. So, you, that sort of suggests, you know, maybe he did do some things right as well. But um, he is accused of, right from the very early part of his reign, uh, killing his stepbrother, Britannicus, um, because he, um, you know, might have threatened, you know, Nero's rule when he got a bit older, particularly. Um, and also other family members. So in AD 59, five years into his reign, he is, um, you know, uh, we're told he concocted this vastly elaborate plot to kill his mother that included a sinking ship and all sorts of things. Um, and then also he's um, implicated in kind of the murder of other family members like his aunt and, and um, you know, uh, other people who might, uh, in theory, threaten um, his, any, his legitimacy to reign. Um, so that's the one side of it, kind of the, 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 killing his wife as well. Sorry, I should mention Octavia and then uh, Poppea, two wives he is accused of killing or having a hand in killing. Um, but then also you get other things that are crimes of Nero's that, you know, aren't in that same sort of category that we now think of as crimes. So, for example, he loved to act on the stage. Um, he was a performer, um, you know, we're told in his heart, it's what he always wanted to do. Um, and when he decides to start doing that, acting in public in the 60s, sort of mid-60s um, AD, um, he is, you know, severely criticised for this because this is not something that an emperor should be doing while they are also trying to, um, you know, conduct their affairs in Rome. 
And in fact, in AD 66 to 67, he leaves Rome and he goes to Greece to take part in a, a sort of tour of the games there. And the person he leaves in charge at Rome is a freedman, um, which is someone who was formerly a slave. Um, his name's Helios. So that kind of action as well, where perhaps in a modern context, we don't think of them as crimes, were very much up there with the crimes of the Neronian period. Um, in addition, the, another um, sort of, well, another couple of things that he is very well known for is um, his love of luxury. So um, after Rome is, uh, a large part of Rome is destroyed by a fire in AD 64, he uh, gets to rebuild. And one of the things he does is build himself a new palace. I mean, you know, maybe you would, if anyone would in that situation. Uh, but it's called the Domus Aurea, which means the golden house. He builds a very, very luxurious, huge palace um, in Rome, uh, you know, for himself, but possibly also, you know, uh, partly part of part of it was open to the public as well, the gardens, for example. Um, but uh, that love of luxury is something that has really pervaded the way that we understand Nero today. Um, so the other thing that is a repercussion of the fire of Rome that happened in uh, 64 AD is that Nero um, needed someone to blame for it. He had enacted a building programme after it that uh, saw him be able to rebuild Rome, build his, his palace, and he seemed to be taking a little bit too much joy in that process. So rumours started flying that maybe he started the fire himself so that he would, would be able to rebuild Rome sort of in his image, as it were. Um, so in order to quell or squash those rumours, he decided to blame a group that were already known as a little bit antisocial in Rome. Um, you know, we're talking about the 60s AD um, uh, at this point, um, which was the Christians. So Christianity was still very early on in its development, um, very much so. This is a group in Rome. Um, there would have been, very, you know, very few groups in the West at this point. There were some, of course, but, um, but it was mainly centred in the East. Um, so in order to, um, like I say, get rid of this rumour, he pinpointed the Christians as being responsible for starting the fire and he um, killed them in a very dramatic way. So he had Christians kind of pinned up to crucifixes and burnt during the night as candles. Um, and this was really kind of, you know, setting a... Um, uh, a tone for uh, what would happen, you know, to criminals who threatened uh, Rome in this way. But also, of course, then entered Christian history as the first persecution of the Christians, even if it's not systematic, as we might expect persecution to be used as a phrase now. Um, so that then gives him this legacy in, in Christian history, of course, of being someone who initiated the first of these persecutions, the first time Christians had faced any um, any sanctions, as it were, or, or been been threatened, actually is better, um, since uh, the crucifixion of Christ. Now, it's interesting that when we're talk you're talking about these crimes, to the modern person, some of them sound far worse than others. I mean, the idea of you're equating killing lots of his family members with performing on stage you know only one of those sounds really abhorrent to us today but does this <laughs> suggest that roman moral standards were very different to what we have now yes to some extent of course you know uh moral standards were completely different in lots of ways not just uh, you know in, in in those ways um compared to what we have now i mean even 
you know, Victorian standards are completely different, you know, compared to what we have now when we talk about, you know, equality, women's rights, those sorts of things. Um, but really, what was also happening in Rome at this point is sort of we're still in the the process of trying to define what an emperor is, what an emperor should do, what this figure who has this you know power to some extent um looks like and and how they should act and we've had augustus setting the tone for this um during his reign which was very long um 27 bc to ad 14 so a very long reign um and then tiberius um comes afoul of the sources um because he tries to change that slightly he he steps away from power a little bit he doesn't want to necessarily be at the forefront of of the decision making all the time he'd rather the senate did some of that um caligula is famous for lots of reasons but also had his own ideas about the power, about about the status of the emperor a lot of the stories we hear about him as well are because he is taking power to a different level. He wants the power to be embodied in him to some extent. And that's not necessarily unreasonable. It's just the negotiation process is still taking place. Um, And then uh, Claudius ruffles feathers because he likes to um, take the council of freedmen, so those former slaves, perhaps over the Senate, which is controversial. And then Nero, again, is still, you know, trying to decide how it is he wants to be emperor. And one of the things that he likes to do, um, our sources say, is you know, have a relationship with the people. He's quite um, quite set on making sure the grain supply always gets there, you know, that that kind of thing. Um, and perhaps we can see this theatricality, the, um, the, the uh, aspect of his reign where he wants people to see him on stage as a part of that. But certainly at this point, this was not something, our historians are very clear on this, that an emperor should be doing. So Nero acting on the stage wasn't uh, necessarily, you know, a problem for us as a modern audience, but in antiquity, it was far more of an issue because he was doing something that was seen as the profession of the the kind of lowest of the low to some extent. Um, Actors were uh, sometimes slaves, they were foreign they were not what you would think of as Rome's sort of, you know, leading elite, like we have a leading elite of, of actors um, in, you know, in our modern day. Um, rather, what Nero was doing was um, something that really contravened the idea of what a Roman male should do, what he should be um you know, what the sorts of pursuits he should be following as a Roman elite, let alone as Roman emperor. So when he gets up on stage, those who are writing about him, the historians, um, you know, writing in the early second century AD, um, are really quite appalled that Nero was, uh, you know, wanting to pursue these things because it wasn't what a typical Roman male should be doing. Now, what what are the sources that we have for for these allegations against Nero, and how reliable would you say they are? Our three writers uh, named uh, Tacitus, Suetonius, and Cassius Dio. Um, Tacitus and Suetonius are both writing in about the um, early to mid. Uh, second century AD, so we're talking kind of 120s-ish AD. Um, And Cassius Dio is a bit later again, he's the end of the second century AD, so he's writing under the Emperor Commodus in, uh, well, he's gaining his political career under the Emperor Commodus and probably writing alongside that and the the next um, emperors after him, so right at the end of the um, 100s AD. So these are writers who were quite a lot after Nero. Um, one of the you know most 
perhaps obvious things to say about them is they are writing under a different dynasty of emperors. Nero is the last of the Julio-Claudians. After that, there is a short period of civil war. And then uh, the new dynasty, the Flavians, um, Vespasian, Titus and Domitian, um, are the emperors under whom uh, Tacitus and Suetonius are making their careers, are growing up, if you like, and making their careers as young men in Rome. Um, and then after that, they're also, um, you know, writing under and are engaged with the uh, another set of emperors, the, um, the Nerva and Trajan. And Hadrian. So we're going past even the Flavians to a little bit later. And then Cassius Dio, of course, even later after that. Um, so to some extent, uh, Nero, you know, w- because he was the last in a dynasty, he's never going to be a great emperor um, because he caused the downfall, you know, they would say, to, of the Julio Claudians. Um, so we're mainly having to rely on historical sources that are quite a little bit late, quite a lot later than uh, Nero's actual reign. Although, you know, Tacitus and Suetonius were probably, Tacitus in particular was probably sort of a young man, um, you know, when Nero was coming to the end of his reign. So he may have had a little bit of uh, memory. But the thing to remember, I guess, about, about Nero is that after his um, after his reign, there were, and during his reign, there were lots of different assessments of how he was doing. Um, one uh, writer uh, named Josephus tells us that there were lots of different ways that the emperor was was talked about. You know, some were sycophants and really liked him. Others wanted to criticise him. Everyone has their own agenda, of course. Um, but there was a wide range of different ways that he was talked about. Um, and unfortunately, we've lost a number of those different ways. So uh, we have to rely uh, primarily on Tacitus Suetonius and Cassius Dio, um, which means that we have to rely on a tradition that generally saw him as, you know, the last of the Julio-Claudians and an ineffective emperor. And so considering our sources are generally later than the time, how sure can we be of some of the allegations against him? Yeah, so this is where it gets tricky. And this is kind of what keeps us Roman historians in business to some extent. Um, The arguments uh, that we have over how much you can really rely on these sources. Um, Of course, it's difficult because they are writing later. They all have their own agendas and, and, you know, as any historian would do. But it's certainly a case that, um, you know, because we have lost so much from ancient history, um, it's difficult really to tell, uh, you know, that whether everything they're saying is really reliable. And that's where, you know, kind of your training as a historian is there to try and help you discern what is more plausible and what is less plausible. So, for example, Tacitus using the... um, Uh, records of the Senate, you know, that's quite a good source. It's, you know, records that legal records, those sorts of things um, is is fairly, um, you know, a a, a reputable way to get your information. Some of the rumours that they talk about, um, you know, are less concrete. You know, when rumours are flying around Rome about, um, you know, incest, for example, between Agrippina, who's Nero's mother, and Nero as a controlling mechanism that this is what Agrippina did to control him. That sort of thing, you know, is probably worth taking with a pinch of salt because uh, Agrippina was also demonised as being the overly controlling mother. So those sorts of stories tend to, you know, exaggerate that perhaps to uh, to the nth degree. Um, and then, of course, there's also, uh, you know, ideas that 
go along with someone being a tyrant. So um, killing on a whim, for example, the idea that, you know, you could click your fingers in Rome and suddenly Nero would have changed his mind about what he wants, uh, you know, to be, who he wants to be around him, what he wants to be policy, and everything could change overnight. We see that sort of idea come through, um, you know, the, the accounts of tyrants, um, you know, in antiquity, but but you know, later as well. So it's worth sort of bearing in mind that sometimes uh, these stories come also with, well, come with being stories. Um, things that are seen as as traditionally tyrannical kind of traits or, or stereotypes can be attached to uh, figures from the past. Um, that's not to say Nero necessarily did everything brilliantly and, you know, everyone's just trying to, trying to, um, condemn him for no reason. But when reading the sources, they are later, we do need to be aware that there will be some things um, in them that are, you know, less reliable as historical evidence, less reliable as as historical truth, you know, um, whatever that truth may be. Um, So, yeah, that's that's sort of the nature, I guess, of being an ancient historian. You're constantly having to second guess uh, your sources. Still to come on the History Extra podcast. I think the idea of viewing any figure from history, actually, whether it's ancient Rome or, or um, you know, other time periods, as either straightforwardly good or as straightforwardly bad, of course, you know, is 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 difficult because humans are naturally humans, and there are always going to be grey areas. This episode is brought to you by ZipRecruiter. Daylight saving time is once again upon us, as is the debate about whether it's truly needed or not. But if you're hiring, it really doesn't matter. Because even though it may feel as if your day is longer, it won't help you find qualified candidates any sooner. There's only one way to do that. ZipRecruiter. Once you post your job, ZipRecruiter sends it to 100 plus job sites and then uses smart technology to find people with the skills and experience to match the position. So spring forward with ZipRecruiter. Four out of five employers get a quality candidate within the first day. Try it for free at ZipRecruiter.com extra. That's ZipRecruiter.com extra. Over 25 years ago, on September 29th, 1998, we watched a brainy girl with curly hair drop everything to follow a guy she only kind of knew all the way to college. And so began Felicity. My name is Juliette Littman, and I'm a Felicity superfan. Join me, Amanda Foreman, who you may know better as Megan, the roommate, and Greg Grunberg, who you may also know as Sean Blunberg, as the three of us revisit our favorite moments from the show and talk to the people who helped shape it. Listen to Dear Felicity, presented by Walmart on Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts. And so I appreciate that there is some doubt about his actions, but if we assume that at least some of them are probably true, what do you think the motivation for them was? Is is this really about personal failings or is it more are they more political acts? I think it's probably a mix of the two. Um, like I said before, the idea of what an emperor should be is changing. So emperors are trying out different things. Um, when we come to kind of the idea of killing, for example, um, some of, you know, this is not to to sound blasé about this, but ancient Rome was cutthroat um, when we come to political families. That's true of the Republic as well, um, and particularly the period of violence that happened before um, Augustus. Um, The idea of, of, you know, 
people threatening your legitimacy, those people needing to be, you know, taken out of the way is not something we only see with Nero. We have, you know, accusations of that, um, of other emperors as well. Um, Even Augustus, before he became emperor when he was still known as Octavian, is, you know, accused of doing some horrific things in terms of, um, you know, what he did to gain power. So really no emperor is guiltless when it comes to those sorts of accusations. Um, so that perhaps can be seen in, in a wider political context. Um, and similarly, things like the building of the Golden Palace, the, the huge residence that he had in Rome, one of the things that emperors by this time were expected to do was outdo the building projects of their predecessors. Um, you know, there's that famous quote from Suetonius that Augustus left, you know, found Rome a city of bricks and left it a city of marble. Well, if that's, you know, the where your start your starting point as an emperor, then it's perhaps not surprising that building had got to the stage that it had by the time of Nero, that the emperors were trying to do bigger and better things all the time. Um, others are, are perhaps more personal. Um, Nero maybe misreading how uh, how strongly the Senate and later historians would feel, for example, about him acting on stage, um, is is something that perhaps he, he he that he misread. He he didn't pitch that particularly well. He didn't necessarily um, you know see that this would become one of the in a negative way. Perhaps he wanted it to be. A, positive thing attached to it, but for posterity in a negative way, something that uh, would become such a big part of of why uh, in antiquity he was um, considered a tyrant. Um, And I say that not just because it turns up in, in, uh, you know, ancient Roman historians, but other sources, Um, the Judeo-Christian Sibylline oracles, for example, probably also of the early second century AD, when they're condemning Nero as a tyrant and actually a sort of um, apocalyptic, sort of pseudo-apocalyptic figure, uh, or so, no, proto-apocalyptic figure, I should say. Um, he is, you know, described as the liar player, as the chariot, um, you know, rider, uh, chariot driver. So these these ideas get attached to him so very quickly, and that sort of thing perhaps um, was a bit more of a personal mismanagement <laughs> rather than a result of the broader political um, landscape. Which uh, so, so yeah, I think both of those things really played into why Nero did um, what he did. Um, but again, he reigned for 14, he lasted for 14 years, so uh, he you know, was able to keep Rome, uh, was able to avoid um, sort of, uh, you know, being deposed or as eventually happened to him being um, declared a public enemy and and, uh, upon which he committed suicide. Um, He managed to to evade that for quite a long time. And and so saying that and that he he reigned for 14 years suggests that he wasn't universally loathed. So I wonder if you could tell us about maybe some of his achievements of his reign. Yeah. <laughs> so there he he was like I say he he was quite popular with the people. So he would uh you know like I say ensure the grain supply, make sure that that um there was entertainments in Rome, you know, the, the- theater kind of plays into that to some extent as well. We're still in pre-Colosseum times. The Colosseum wasn't built until um the emperor that eventually won out after the civil war um, under Vespasian and his son Titus. But um, there were certainly, you know, entertainments in Rome, games. He instituted two big new festivals. Um, One of them was repeated every five years. Um, 
And so he had, you know, a lot of entertainment in Rome um, that, you know, would have kept the people happy. Um, but also he, um, you know, to, to some extent, he's seen as being quite a successful emperor, particularly in the first five years of his reign, when he had um, two advisors, Seneca and Burrus, there to make sure, you know, the Senate were mainly kept happy, those sorts of things. Um, so he did, you know, institute legislation. He took an interest in the Senate, Tacitus tells us. He wanted to, you know, be um, involved, but he also took heed of what other senators say. He really falls afoul of the Senate in, um, you know, actually... The same period as the fire, just after the fire in 65 AD, when there's a conspiracy against Nero, um, which is not just within the Senate, but is um, has a senator as its figurehead, Piso. Um, and that's when really the cutting down on uh, the, the measures against the Senate start to ramp up and, and people, the conspirators are, um, you know, are killed quite rapidly or commit suicide. Um, so there's there's a period where Nero is seen as quite successful, but also there's lots going on externally in his reign as well. Um, he successfully uh, puts down the Boudican revolt in the early 60s, so um, a revolt that, of course, is going on in, in Britain. Um, he sends out a, a general, um, Suetonius Paulinus, to uh, to deal with that, and that does happen. Um, he also has another very good general in his team, if you like, named Corbulo, who is dealing with um, uh, Armenia at this stage. So he is over in in Armenia, um, trying to uh, trying to settle things between the Romans and the the Parthians, basically. So the Parthians are the empire um, to the east of of uh, the Roman Empire, and he is there, you know, trying to. Um, gain back some territory that the Parthians have taken. He's quite successful. Parthia, uh, sorry, Armenia becomes a client kingdom again under Nero. So he does have, you know, wider, um, there's wider things going on in the empire as well. And of course, his trip to Greece meant that people in Greece, you know, thought, well, wow, the emperor's coming. Um, that's quite, uh, you know, that that's quite a, a rarity for an emperor to, to spend so long outside of Rome at this stage. It's going to become much more common later on. But at this stage, um, it's it's still um, you know fairly rare. So he is uh, seen in Greek inscriptions as being quite you know uh, as as favouring Greece, and the Greeks um, respond to that quite well. And you alluded earlier to uh, Nero's downfall. I wonder if you could give us a few more details about why he ended up becoming this public enemy. Sure. So it's a sad story to some extent. Um, after he has visited Greece, he goes to Naples and he returns from Naples in about AD, in early AD 68. And um, there have been uh, uprisings in other parts of, um, of the empire. So generals um, who are uh, very popular amongst their troops want to challenge, um, in other words, Nero's um, legitimacy and Nero's reign. And he puts the first one of these down quite quickly. But then um, a man named Galba, who will become emperor after Nero, um, also manages to gain quite a lot of support. Um, and the Senate decide that they would rather have Galba as emperor than Nero. Um, you know, Nero's just spent quite a lot of time outside of Rome. And, uh, you know, arguably, he's um, given the Senate and others enough of an opportunity to um, decide, you know, what they want to happen next. So um, he is declared a public enemy um, in in by the Senate, and 
That means basically he realises he has to get out of Rome. And our main source for this is Suetonius, because unfortunately we've lost the very end of the reign of Nero in Tacitus, so we have to rely on Suetonius for this um, mainly. But he... We hear that Nero kind of has a lot of things running through his mind all at once. He um, thinks about taking poison, but he can't get hold of any because um, the people that, you know, would normally supply that to him have uh, deserted him. Um, And then he thinks maybe he can run away to to Egypt, to Alexandria. Maybe they... The Senate will let him go and be prefect there because he would, you know, he he likes Egypt. He'd wanted to visit earlier and and couldn't. And and you know, he maybe that would be an option. But eventually, he realizes that he um, isn't going to be afforded any of of these things and has to leave Rome. So he and um, some of his closest associates, um, freedmen mainly, um, you know at the dead of night, we're told, sort of, you know, scramble outside of Rome in a very un. To, uh, unceremonious fashion, um, head to um, the villa of one of his freedmen. And uh, Nero decides that um, it it's better for him to take his own life rather than be found by the Praetorian Guard, who is, um, you know, the people who are supposed to be protecting him but have now um, decide, you know, sided with the Senate, um, decides that it's better for him to take his own life. So has a um, freedman... Uh, named Epaphroditus help him do that and and again the death scene is tragic because even right at the very end Nero can't quite you know get up the courage um or strength to to kill himself you know straight fall on his sword as it were straightforwardly he has to get his freedmen to help him and uh he he um uh, stabs himself with um, Epaphroditus's help. So that's how Nero comes to a rather unceremonious end. Um, although he does get a large state funeral after that, we're told that he does, um, you know, he's he's buried properly, um, not in the mausoleum of Augustus, which is full by this point, but um, a bit, bit uh, in Rome still he is, he is buried. And there is a, a lavish state funeral um, that that happens as a result of you know after his death, so he's not sort of you know his body isn't uh, you know quietly secreted away or thrown into the Tiber or anything like that. Um, he does have a proper funeral. And then, how much do you think Nero's continuing terrible reputation is due in particular to his treatment of Christians, considering how influential Christianity has then become in the West? Yeah, this is very interesting. Um, to su- to some extent, I think it's a, a very large, um, you know, a, a reason, and not just because um, Christian history focused on his treatment of Christians, um, the persecution, but because when they were describing that, they also, those same historians, brought in lots of other aspects of his um, biography, as it were, um, that had been established by about the second century of of Nero as the tyrant. They brought those in to help kind of secure their their ideas that he was this apocalyptic figure. He is described as the Antichrist, um, you know, in in about the third century, um, explicitly described as this. And as I said earlier, the the sort of proto-Antichrist figure figure that he becomes in the Sibylline Oracles, when that happens, their their story that their, their reasons 
for this characterization are bolstered by the fact that he is also seen as a mother killer and a wife killer and and a, a, a theater you know an emperor who performed on stage those things all like i say go rather for us uncomfortably but for them quite naturally together as these um aspects of of his uh, character that help to allow early Christians to understand why Nero could be the character of the Antichrist. Not only did he persecute Christians, he was also a murderer and a, um, a sexual deviant and a, um, a you know a lover of luxury. And all of these things then get perpetuated on and on. And certainly, but, you know, like I say, became very much part of not only the way that, um, you know, pagan Romans understood his legacy um, and his reign um, through the later centuries, but also, you know, it became very prominent in Christian history as well. Um, And that, of course, then comes back, um, you know, when we think about, for example, the early film industry, um, Quo Vadis, which is one of my favourite <laughs> films with Nero in it, partly because of Peter Ustinov, who is just wonderful in the 1951 um, version of, of Quo Vadis. Um, that, that film is playing on these characteristics to some extent. He is a tyrant because he um, loves the theatre, because he doesn't make up his own ideas. Um, they actually don't show him killing his mother or his wives um, in the film. It starts after that, but the Christian persecution is still fundamentally at the core of it. It's a Christian story. Um, and the book that that's based on, which was written in um, 1895 by Henrik Sienkiewicz, that had Nero as the Antichrist, if you like, uh, running through it in in a much more explicit fashion than the than the film does. So that the idea that all of these things go together, his persecution of the Christians, the apocalyptic role he is afforded as the Antichrist, but also the killing of, of other members of the imperial family, his performances on stage and his luxury, they all form this um, idea of Nero as a as a tyrant and and inform the way that, of course, we think about him as emperor um, and have done through the centuries. And I think through this conversation, I get the sense that you think we should view Nero in a slightly more nuanced way than perhaps (laughs) he has been done. I wonder if there are, are there any other emperors who perhaps could take the crown for being Rome's worst emperor then if it's not (laughs) Nero? I think the problem when you start to kind of argue Uh, that we should look at history in a more nuanced way is then it's very difficult to start pinpointing, pointing the finger at other people and saying, oh, this one, this one's terrible. Um, So, of course, Caligula um, had his issues. Um, One of the things that scholarship now says is that maybe he had, you know, struggling with with, um, a sort of madness. It's very difficult to, to... diagnose psychological illnesses on the basis of biographies that were written, you know, 100 years after his death or or whatever. But um, I think the idea of viewing any figure from history, actually, whether it's ancient Rome or or, um, other time periods, as either straightforwardly good or straightforwardly bad, of course... Is, is is difficult because humans are naturally humans and there are always going to be grey areas. There are always going to be things that, you know, they think they're doing well, that they're not doing well, or they've misunderstood um, or have other uh, scenarios going on in their life that don't make it into the history sources. So we don't necessarily know about. Um, 
So I think there there are other um, similarly difficult emperors when we come to their their legacy. Um, one of my favourite emperors um, for looking at this sort of thing is is Elagabalus, who is. Uh, reigns in the third century from 218 to 222 AD. And he, like Caligula, is only around for four short years. But gosh, he's he's 14, um, if my memory serves me correctly, uh, when he becomes emperor. He's so young. And he um, he's a priest in the cult of a rather, um, of an Eastern solar deity named Elagabal. That's where his name comes from, because he is the, the high priest in this, this cult. Um, and he brings Elagabal to Rome, and he is accused of all sorts of religious undermining of the Roman, Roman institutions and uh, religious debauchery as well. You know, all of these cults are tied up with various sexual practices, um, according to our sources. So he really comes in for a very bad time. And and also because he's um, described as quite effeminate and quite pretty as well. He's then, you know, accused of dressing up as as a woman and and, um, creating even perhaps a woman's senate. Um, And all of these things are culturally difficult when we come to re-evaluating because... Those sorts of things now, you know, a woman's senate, well, good for him, you know, good for Elagabalus, he was before his time. But of course, it's um, it's difficult necessarily to uh, read things always through a modern lens. But um, certainly the, the way that, um, you know, to understand any of these emperors as unproblematically bad or unproblematically evil, I think is, is difficult because they're human beings at the end of the day. And we, we only have sources from thousands of years ago to try and understand them. So I think using some sense of, like I said, historical criticism, but also thinking about the nature of how we approach these figures from from the remote past and perhaps even the more recent past is is something to uh, to bear in mind when uh, characterising them, I think. That was Shushma Malik. Her book, The Nero Antichrist, Founding and Fashioning a Paradigm is out now, published by Cambridge University Press. And as I mentioned earlier, you can read a feature by Shushma in the August issue of BBC History magazine. That also includes articles on medieval dynasties, the civil rights movement, myths of Victorian London, and a whole lot more. Thanks for listening. This podcast was produced by Ben Hewitt and Jack Bateman. We'll be back on Wednesday when Alexander Larman will be speaking to Dan Jones about the abdication crisis. Mm-hmm.